I'm Tammy Vindand, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Simone Clark, the CEO of UN Women Australia. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things about running a charity. Simone, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tammy. I first heard about you and women from one of my former colleagues at RSPCA, ACT, Lisa Quinn, and I believe she still works for you. She does indeed. One of our longest serving at this account. So, yes. <laughs> well, for those people that are not familiar with your organization, can you please tell us more about it? Sure. So UN Women Australia is the Australian National Office for UN Women. UN Women is a United Nations agency, so part of the United Nations system. And we are tasked with, as an organisation, advancing the Sustainable Development Goal, specifically number five, which is to achieve gender equality by 2030, uh, which at current rates is looking fairly elusive, um, which is a little bit disappointing. But um, we work in a range of areas. We work around empowering women through financial leadership, through greater representation in public office, uh, both also in business as well. We also look at programs in um, mitigating the impact of climate change and climate emergencies on women in particular and families, and also obviously in humanitarian crises and situations like the Ukraine um, and others around the world as they happen, both natural and man-made. So we have uh, a lot of work to do and it doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. So um, compelling mission, really incredible time, I think, to be working in this space, working around gender equality and the women's movement in particular, which, you know, harks back to the suffragette days. So um, I am, I'm absolutely privileged to be part of this organisation and I have worked in the UN system before, but, um, and I have worked specifically in the UN system with um, women and children. So it really is something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and when you consider that half the world um, or more are women, um, we've certainly got a large constituent base to, to draw on and to engage in our work. So really, interesting, challenging, exciting, and also sometimes disheartening um, place to be working um, in the current climate. Mm. And what part of your work is actually focused on Australia as a country versus those that are um, in other places? So effectively, our role in Australia with a specific focus domestically is on advocacy. So looking at things like and working with civil society organisations around the gender pay gap for women in Australia, around financial empowerment, um, really looking at what are those key indicators, those large global statistics, what do they look like in Australia? We also work in ending violence against women, all forms of violence. So um, I think, you know, particularly in Australia, that is something that's um, unfortunately, the statistics um, are, are pretty damning, both in Australia and overseas. So really in Australia, our role is to work with like-minded civil society organisations, with the private sector and certainly with the Australian government, both here and particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, to look at uh, gender equality and how we can empower women, not only in Australia, but also beyond our shores. So that's it really is an international um, organisation and role. Okay. Well, t tell me more about how you got involved in this organization. Uh, I don't know if I've got the memory that goes back that far, but let me, <laughs> let me see how we go. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, so I started out with the background in um, first in, in law, um, which I then stopped and went into communications. So very much a communications, marketing background, fundraising. And it was just something that the actual, I suppose, the entry point into working with uh, not-for-profits was I was uh, a mother of two young children 
and uh, and I worked in communications and a job came up in the mid 80s for a um, sorry mid 90s for a media manager part time. Now that might seem par for the course uh, in 2023, but I can tell you back in you know the early 90s uh, that the availability of management roles part time for working mothers was really were really quite thin on the ground, and so. I was always very driven by sort of purpose and impact and sort of how I could align my personal values, particularly around the protection of women and girls uh, and children. And so I had an opportunity to work with UNICEF, and that was my first role here in Australia, uh, where I was working here for five years, and then I had the opportunity to work for UNICEF in New York as well. So I've had both the domestic-facing experience as well as that international experience, and uh, that has been fascinating on so many levels. I mean, the United Nations is and of itself, um, you know, over 193 member states now, 190 member states. So it really is the international government for the world. Um, and so with that comes some complexities and challenges, but the absolute diversity of that working experience working within the UN system is um, something that I have really enjoyed, um, at, not without its uh, nuances and its, uh, you know, its idiosyncrasies as well. And how long have you been at um, UN Women Australia? So I'm just coming up to, I've just celebrated my first anniversary with UN Women Australia. So I'm about sort of 14 months in and um, looking forward, hopefully, to, um, you know, a, a long time with the organisation. The um, We're a young organisation in the UN system, and so that's really quite exciting. So we're, we're only in our current iteration as UN Women. Um, you know, we, we call ourselves a teenager. Um, when I, and, you know, I look at around the UN system and beyond, and I look at large organisations like the Red Cross, um, UNICEF with a very long distinguished history. Our history is a little over a decade, so we are a lot younger. Um, so there is much ambition. Um, there is much desire to be, we, we always say we are small, but we're mighty. And so with that comes its own set of challenges, you know, in terms of operations and running a not-for-profit uh, when you have a small team, but a very dedicated and nimble team. And it's also interesting to go from a large-scale organisation to a smaller-scale organisation um, because, you know, the nuances are different, uh, the challenges are different, but I think there's obviously a, a core skill set and um, a range of experiences that you garner over the years that puts you in good stead. And how many employees do you have now? So I've now got 11, um, the majority of which are part-time. So we, we pride ourselves on being as flexible as we can be um, for working women and men. Um, we have a stay-at-home dad on who works with us and looks after all of our database and our data, and um, he is very committed to his family, which is fabulous, and we do our best to support him in that commitment. So it's um, it's a bit about walking the talk as well, I think, particularly when we look at the changing nature of the workforce and how people want to work and show up for work um, and where they work from. Mm. And what about volunteers? Do you have any volunteers? We do. We often have volunteers. We do call-outs for um, major events and other community engagement opportunities. We don't have as many uh, hands-on, if you like, volunteering opportunities year-round by sheer virtue of the fact that our work is predominantly, our program work is predominantly um, not within Australia, but certainly when we have events and campaigns, um, we obviously involved in things like the um, 16 Days of Activism, which is, you know, there's marches and other things um, to end violence against women. So, and then we we call on our, our supporter base to join us, really, and show their solidarity for women um, and equality everywhere. So um, it's really that grassroots connection with individuals who are passionate to the cause and to the, you know, the rights of women more broadly. Mm. So the majority of your work is around advocacy. You have a few events. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you have 11 member or 11 staff members. I'm just thinking about from a ratio of, of I was just looking at the ACNC website to try to understand your financial um, yeah. state. And, and I'm just curious, like, how do you um, get a pretty, it seems like you have a pretty good distribution of donations that come into the organization. Do you use that for things like grants? Are you an organization that hands out grants or is it per, purely with pushing it out to the right um, other organizations? So the funds that we raise are then transferred to UN Women Headquarters who have a range of programs then allocate them according to the need and or geographic representation. Uh, we do work very closely with the Australian government who are a major government, par government partner for UN Women. And so through our bilateral aid program within Australia, obviously we work again to uh, secure funding from the government to invest in programs within the Asia Pacific region in particular. And we have a really long and um, wonderful relationship of working with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So um, we, we have a, one of the things from an uh, operational perspective with not-for-profits, which is really important, is that spread of and diversity of income streams. Because I know I've worked for other organisations that are solely and entirely dependent on individual contributions. And some, some organisations look at that as spreading the risk, so a little from a lot. Others are very strong on government um, and others on partnerships. And so I suppose if there is one lesson that I've taken away over the years is really to ensure that you have the diversity of support from a range of stakeholders, particularly financial support, because um, it's really important because if one income stream is challenged or one level of funding is challenged, then at least you have others to rely on. Um, we have our International Women's Day events, which are signature events across Australia. Uh, that is a... Um, you know, a very daunting uh, task because it is literally held in across the country simultaneously. And so from an event management perspective, uh, it's it's rather challenging, but from our reach and also from the um, income generation, that's been fairly effective. But again, um, looking to spread that risk, if you like, to ensure that we have deep relationships with a range of stakeholders from individuals to government to private sector. And I know, Simone, you've worked for another organizations. Um, UNICEF was the one you mentioned, but I, I think I have this right from Save the Children to AFL yeah. to Missions yes. Australia, Animal World Protection. I mean, you've done a lot of not-for-profit work. Surely yeah. you have some lessons learned, you know, on top of what you just mentioned. Um, like, for instance, I know that when I've spoken to other executives who are highly dependent on government funding, mm. um, and, and I'm sure probably no exception for your work, is it, it often depends on the government of the day in terms of what their priorities are and what not-for-profits are going to support. Um, do you have any lessons learned from some of that work that you do in fundraising and working with governments? Sure. I mean, government is always, um, it's always a, a great relationship to have. It does take nurturing and it also, there is a certain level of compliance and good governance that goes with that. So um, in terms of reporting and acquittal with governments, that's incredibly important, but also demonstrating impact. And I think one of the things that I have noticed, certainly in terms of the Australian context, in terms of humanitarian assistance and international development, is that you know, in, from going this sort of movement from just looking purely at the numbers or the outputs to really what are the impacts that we're making longer term. And I think that's really important. But for a lot of not-for-profits, um, you know, sometimes the reporting aspect of that can be somewhat overwhelming and, you know, even just acquittal reports and other things like that can actually, there's a burden of compliance, I think, on a lot of organisations, certainly in Australia and across the globe, where 
um, particularly for smaller organisations when dealing with government, you have to ensure that you have the foundations for those relationships and the foundations to be able to deliver on the expectations, which are very clear in government contracts. They're very clear about their expectations. But um, I often think sometimes it's it's very easy to be dazzled by the large sums of money. But I suppose one note of caution that I would put out to other aspiring not-for-profit leaders is just to really um, ensure that you have in place the operational infrastructure to be able to meet those expectations. And the same thing can be said for the private sector. The private sector works on a very abbreviated time frame. Um, they are used to working in a commercial environment. And um, one of the things, having worked in corporate partnerships for many years, is um, going back to program colleagues uh, in-house and saying, now I need this proposal and, you know, I told them I'd get back to them next week. And it's like, oh, well, you know, we can't because we're doing program work. So sometimes it's it's a real struggle to manage the expectations of partners and funders with the reality of um, the reality of you know doing the work that we do and the good work that we do and and I think one of the other big misnomers that I've come across you know during my career is that um, often when you are talking to a partner it will be a conversation around well there are costs around compliance there are costs around running the program and there certainly used to be years ago but I think is improving this notion that uh, fundraising should be free uh, fundraising is not free fundraising is a machine fundraising has incredibly disciplined marketing, um, you know, automation and systems behind it. And it doesn't exist in a vortex and it does cost money. So I'm sometimes struck by, you know, talking to an FMCG company and they're talking about, well, you know, this should be, what, why is there a 10% overhead ratio? And, and it's, well, that's what it actually costs to even deliver the partnership. And so um, what's seen as overhead and unnecessary is actually the core of fundraising. It's the core of, you know, working for charity. And there is a there is a cost. So people talk about, oh, it's cost neutral and it's this. Well, actually, it's not. There is a hard cost. And I think progressively over the years, I've certainly seen a shift, but still interesting sometimes when you get a partner that may want a very detailed report or, you know, we're like case studies from the field and we'd like footage and we're like images. And okay, that's great when you're, you know, a, a much larger organization, but it, it does get more tricksy for some of the smaller organizations. So I think it, it probably comes back again to the, uh, managing expectations, but also knowing that you can deliver on those expectations or that you have the infrastructure and the foundations in place to deliver on that infrastructure, you know, on those expectations. So I think that's one of the lessons um, learnt along the way that sometimes, you know, that the glitter of the gold can be a little deceptive because uh, there's a cost with, with doing business. There's a cost with, you know, working in a not-for-profit. And I, I also balk at that, at that not-for-profit we are absolutely a profit-making entity because every dollar that we make in terms of profit, that goes to programs and that goes to changing the world for women. So I would I would argue that the profit that not-for-profits supposedly, you know, are here to make is far more important than a commercial profit because it has a social and a societal impact and value. So when you talk about returns on investment and value creation, I think in a not-for-profit environment, it's uh, fascinating and often discounted, uh, you know, around the value that is created. Um, and it's certainly profit, your revenue, income generating, whatever that is, money and investment in programs and initiatives to assist and support women um, take money. And so it's a bit of a misnomer to think that, um, oh, there's, you know, that there's, there's no cost to fundraising. There is, and it, and it is actually getting a more increasingly costly business to be in. Yeah, for sure. And um, I always say I like I like the fact, though, at least in Australia, we say not for profit, where in America, it's nonprofit, where yeah. that, that really is misleading, because it's like, well, if you don't have a profit, you're not sustainable, right? So this exactly. is, this is yeah. uh, 
I think at least a slightly better terminology here locally. I wanted to go back to the cost of compliance and that um, mm-hmm. operational infrastructure to do this work. Um, you mentioned having people in place and some of the requirements that some of your your corporate partners might ask for for case studies and and videos and such like that. I could see that happening a lot, and I've seen it myself. I'm just wondering if there's any tools or technology that you have used in the past that would support, especially the government um, reporting capabilities, which I know um, can be quite onerous, as you said. Mm. And, and it's not peculiar to government. I think reporting per se on, you know, often we are get asked for what impact did that dollar make. And if you try and trace one dollar through any organisation, you will come out with you know with a fairly difficult, uh, I would say, equation. But um, you know, I think the other thing that is um, you know really important in terms of that space is to make sure that um, you know I like to think of it as a for-purpose organisation. So, what representation are you making to partners, be they government, private sector, or individuals? And I consider individuals as as a partner in the work that we do being open, honest and transparent about what it is you are asking them to support and being able to demonstrate value for them is really important. And I think the thing that's helping us in this space is the advent of technology and technology is not the panacea to solve all problems, but um, it certainly helps in terms of gathering information, of sharing information. You know, just if you even if you look at digital channels now and, you know, the use of imagery and the things that I can do now on my laptop that I could only dream of 20 years ago, I'd have to send something to a designer. Um, they are all innovations that have helped, I think, not-for-profits or, you know, for-purpose organisations uh, do better and, and really help, you know, work smarter, not harder, because, you know, most people who work in the not-for-profit sector are, are, are working pretty hard already. Um, so I think, you know, the advent of technology and what that can enable is really um, is really compelling and things like marketing automation um, and and sort of you know, the whole tech stack that we spoke of earlier is uh, really important. So, but it's expensive, you know, and so then we we also look to gurus in that space to help us who are aligned with our mission. And, you know, we're, we're literally working with some people at the moment about helping us improve our our marketing, our automation, our donor databases, our CRMs, things that, you know, large for-profits, large corporates take for granted. And so sometimes that's a bit frustrating because uh, these things cost money. And so when you make those decisions about where am I going to invest that spend, um, you know, every dollar has to absolutely be invested as wisely as you can because you're diverting it away from something else or from a program that, um, you know, you obviously, you know, want to make an impact in. So, um it's it's a juggle, and it's uh, you know I think there's trade offs along the way, but um, it's really important I think to use the technology that's available, and and that enables us all to be a little bit more nimble than I think we probably were in the last sort of 10, 20 years in terms of how we present ourselves, even as not for profits. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about CRM. I actually had a debate with a um, for profit trend center, I guess trend trend setter the other day, who was talking yeah. about I don't see the point of not for profits; they're so inefficient. And um, I provided them with analogy to say, uh, you don't understand the complexities of not-for-profits. And I'm sure you've seen this, maybe not in this organization, but, but you know, I'm thinking about some of the other ones you've worked in, in the past, yeah. where a lot of charities, you don't realize there's a lot of charities actually have two CRMs, one yeah. for the, the people you support through your programs and mm-hmm. another one for your fundraising. That's exactly right. And if you think, of, if you look at, I mean, data and data for everyone, for every organisation, regardless of whether you're for profit or not, you know, we often talk about, you know, the data and how we look after that data is absolutely crucial to our longevity and our sustainability. 
And that's not peculiar just to not-for-profits. You know, if you look at recent hacking scandals and other things, the security, the privacy, and again, there is more, and because we are venturing into these brave new worlds online and digital encryption and all these other things that have been around for years, that adds another layer of complexity to the work we do. So, you know, I remember when the GDPR first came out and we were talking about, you know, donors that had come while we're not in the EU um, working at, a, at another not-for-profit, uh, we had to look at any donors that had come to us from EU countries and ensure that we, we were GDPR compliant, for example. So that's the, that's the local equivalent of, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's global, but sometimes things in a global environment can also impact you locally. And that's really important because it can have an impact on your avail, you know, your ability even to function. And so I know that, you know, the, the, the whole conversation around GDPR globally was one that sent alarm bells racing through a lot of organisations. But again, coming back to the data and how important it is and privacy and not and and in a digital economy where everything is online and people are giving you money and you know they have to trust you that you have the things in place and again that'll cost money so um it's fine to say that i mean i suppose on the other side the conversation around efficiency i would say to for-profits or the gurus out there that know how to you know help us be more efficient I would absolutely love, you know, show us where we can, you know, be more efficient in terms of the way we work, how we work. And a lot of that comes through technology. But again, you've got to have the money to be able to invest in that. And it's not cheap. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of not-for-profits growth trajectory is really based on the availability of investment in their own infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And and also, as I said earlier, making those decisions between do I invest, do I invest in this because I'm hoping for a greater return or a yield like any other sort of corporate or company, but then also knowing that you're also aligned to purpose. Our role and our reason for being is to deliver um, programs, you know, and working with women across the globe. So you make a you make a subjective and qualitative decision about where you're going to invest those very, very small resources. Um, and having worked in some of the larger corporations and larger charities, but certainly in the private sector, um, you know, there are big budgets out there and there are there's a lot of money and, and tech advancement and tech, you know, automation programs. There's a lot of money being spent on that, and that's in large consumer-facing companies. Um, you look at that in a, in a not-for-profit where you've got a whole lot of supporters and you still have the same considerations around privacy, around data security, around encryption, around online shopping. Um, so, you know, we are all faced in a digital economy with those challenges and um, we need to be able to respond to them, but it's not always easy. But I suppose to go back to your point about the replication or, you know, inefficiency, um, there are so many wonderful organisations, you know, often you're, you might be in a competitive pitch against another cause or another for-purpose organisation. And, um, and and there are a lot of them, particularly in Australia, but also globally. And so how, what is your point of difference? Um, you know, and often it's, it's your mission. How do, how do the, how do the funding body that you are approaching the individual or the partner, um, does your mission resonate with them? And sometimes it just doesn't. And so I think sometimes we try to make it fit. Um, but it doesn't work, and I think we need to be mindful of that as well. So, you know, I've, I've had a few of those examples as well. Well, I, I was thinking specifically around grants. Like I've seen a yeah. lot of charities apply for grants that are not aligned with the mission because it seemed like free money, and then they create a brand-new program from scratch that doesn't actually work for them. I'm sure yes. you've seen that too. I have, yep, and I've been involved with that in and around the bushfires um, in Australia um, and, you know, working in animal protection. Um, you know, we were literally watching... Australia's wildlife perish, and um, and again, it was an international organisation who who predominantly work um, in international form, and um, you know in Thailand, you know looking after elephants, bear bile, and a whole lot of other things. But 
when we saw the impact of the bushfires on what was happening to our own wildlife and to animals here, as an organisation that was tasked with animal welfare and ensuring that animals were protected, um, you know, it was really interesting because some of my team were like, but that's not what we do, Simon, so why are we going to go into that space? And then the other, you know, the purpose and, the, you know, the north-facing compass was like, but hang on, if we're, if we're here to help animals, how can we not try and do something for, you know, wildlife in Australia? So sometimes you have that rub between your, you know, your governance and your mission and, you know, if it's not entirely aligned, do you just say no out of hand? And I think that's sometimes where it's really hard to make those and they're really value judgments around um, what you do or don't do. So it's never an easy decision. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, a lot of not-for-profits uh, chase the money and then sometimes we create a rod for our own back mm -hmm. because then we've got to come up with a program, implement it, report on it, acquit it, and you go, you know, how how effective was that? And is, the, is that the best use of our time? Because some... Um, you know, we're never short of things to do. So I think staying focused is is one of my challenges. I know I'm a bit opportunistic. So I like to sort of <laughs> go after things and go, hey, that looks like a great idea. My team goes, yes, Simon, that's lovely, but who's going to do it? Um, so opportunism, you know, opportunism meets pragmatism, I think is probably at the core of all that. <laughs> Definitely. I want to go back and uh, talk about fundraising a little bit differently because I noticed mm -hmm. on your online store, I, I went there to see what you were selling because most yeah. charities have something to sell, has a mm -hmm. logo on it and things. And what I was really surprised about was you just had specific programs that people could buy into. And mm -hmm. the, really the only tangible things you probably sold were um, pins for International Women's Day. That was like, yeah. obviously, you're, you're supporting a lot of other organizations that are trying to support the the um the event. So mm. it's a little bit different type of product or store than mm. what I see in other places that are really trying to sell merchandise. Um, has there ever been any thought as to that, um, you know, moving into merchandise or is it literally <laughs> the money is in just selling the program, the donation dollars is right there? No, I mean, in fact, we had a conversation about merchandise with some of my team probably about, you know, a few hours ago um, in and around um, not only International Women's Day, which is coming up in March, but also just more broadly, um, because there is, you know, in terms of seeking donations from supporters, and it doesn't matter whether it's for children or women or for emergency response, people give because they, the, the cause resonates with them. When you go into merchandise, I think people get a double whammy. They get a, hey, that's a cool hat and I'm doing something good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the kind of the justification or the rationale for that is probably twofold. I mean, we do empowered gifts, which is literally about buying a gift for a woman in another country that you might otherwise give to your friend or your mother for Mother's Day or for Christmas, et cetera. And, and I know that they're, and that's not peculiar to us, you know, Amnesty do it, a whole lot of other organisations do it where, you know, buy a goat or, you know, buy a donkey or buy a school in a kit sort of box. Um, because what that does is it gives a tangible essence to what you're doing. Because when I talk about women in the Pacific not having an income or having their farms eradicated overnight by a tsunami or a monsoon or flash flooding, People go, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. But I think sometimes it's the tangibility of, of merchandise. It's it's the ability to think that, well, you know, what am I getting in return? And so besides the feel good and besides that that notion of doing good and contributing to the greater good, um, I think sometimes merchandise is, um, you know, a way of perhaps getting a, um, you know, uh, getting something in return that's not 
it's really hard to define, particularly when you work in international environments, because people say, well, why am I giving you my money to send overseas when, you know, I'd rather invest my money here? And that's completely, it's completely valid. Um, because giving is personal. And I think, you know, so often we go, hey, you should give because we're this great organisation, we're doing great work. Yeah, but there's about 350,000 of them in Australia. And um, at last count, which is probably outdated now. And so the reason I give is different to the reason that my mother will give, that my husband might give. And I think sometimes we lose the essence of the supporter in all of this. Um, what do they want to support? And that's where that marketing and that technology really helps us because you can then see what your supporters are engaging with and then you can feed them content around things that they're interested in rather than things you think they should be interested in. And that's a very nuanced um, position and it takes a lot of work. So. Um, you know, it's the, the, you know what are the motivators for giving? And it's fundamentally extremely private uh, for individuals and for companies. It has to be aligned with you, you know the strategic um, you know compass of the organisation or the value set or their sustainability um, uh, strategy. So um, different drivers for different folks, um, and people will give because they want to give, not because we tell them they should give. So, and what percentage of your donors are monthly donors versus one-off givers? Well, it's, it's interesting because, the, the um, again, in not-for-profit land, we have been talking about um, regular giving as a, as a method of giving sort of declining for some time and the, and the acquisition of those regular givers. I know, for example, the last organisation I worked for, we had 92% based, 92% uh, of our income came from individual givers. Um, they were individuals who loved animals and they just wanted to support that work internationally. Then, you know, we have a, a much smaller number um, at UN Women but again, that comes as well, I think, to a, a sort of a, a trust level where your supporter is willing to give you a monthly amount to support a program or the intent of the organisation. And again, that's a harder sell, if you like, than if you give me a dollar, I can buy a goat and that will feed so-and-so. I'm, I'm being very simplistic. So um, we have, in this organisation, we have a smaller base of, of regular givers, but still a very dedicate, dedicated base. And we find that once we have regular givers, they stay with us for quite a long time. And that's that's a really good thing as well because a lot of organisations, the churn in regular givers can be high. So um, we do rely on regular givers and they are, if you like, the backbone of, of um, our organisation, but that's supplemented by uh, private sector income in particular and event income and um, and we're just starting to dabble a little in merchandise. So I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always curious about it because I think some organizations do a really good job in merchandise and a lot of mm. people um, forget all the cost, you know, involved with leftover stock. And in fact, I'm helping a client right now with um, a retail system. And it's not that easy to find good retail systems mm. that can meet a charity's needs, especially exactly. if you have a lot of inventory. So it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting process. And and then you look at supply chain. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the other thing with, you know, any merchandise, um, you know, what's this, what does the supply chain look like? Where is it coming from? Has, you know, you know, modern slavery, has that been used in the production of these goods? That's, a, you know, it's a real challenge for any merch, particularly where, you know, the the fundraiser in you says, well, I want to get it as cheap as possible as I can because then I'll make more money that I can use for my programs. But the ethical and supply chain issues around that are absolutely fraught. So, you know, again, there's quite a process to ensure that whoever you partner with or who you procure goods from um, have a pretty clean su supply chain. And I think with the UN system as well, that is, you know, that's a global piece. And that's a lot of work goes into, you know, shoring up and securing um, supply chain of supply chains of vendors 
who are providing even things like water um, to be able to be distributed. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's complex and, um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, with your international mission as well, um, I actually had a conversation about supply chain with Kate Luke from the, the Little Oak Sanctuary just before Christmas last year. We had a similar conversation because they were into merch. But I have... Um, I'm just wondering from even like if the organization, I didn't look at your balance sheet, but if you had investments, I know that that comes up a lot in board meetings about what as we as an organization is willing to invest in based on our own mission statement. Do you have a set of criteria that sets says that we will not invest in these companies, but we will invest in these just for your, your own um, financial returns? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the UN system more broadly, and certainly within UN Women, um, we have a a due diligence program where we look at exclusionary categories and we make sure that both the companies and the organisations that we partner with, but also those we're procuring goods from, um, meet a certain set of standards. So that's sort of enshrined in in the UN system. It does vary from UN agency to UN agency, but they're fairly, you know, what you would imagine things like, you know, tobacco or landmine production or things that would, you know, have a, have a, devastating catastrophic effect um, on on the very clients that you are here to represent so um, you know that that is really really important and I think it's um, it's becoming increasingly important but then sometimes when you add ownership structures and you look at multinationals and the brands you know the whole the whole notion also of corporate sustainability and um, supply chain and or ethical business um, I've seen huge gains in the last sort of 20 25 years particularly in the private sector, around ethical procurement, ethical sourcing. Um, you know, it's still not perfect, but uh, I'm absolutely delighted that where I would have thought 20 years ago no one really care, um, it's almost part of the licence to operate now because consumers are demanding it. I think that's the other thing is that not only in donors, but you've also got in consumer markets, you've got individuals who are using their purchasing power to buy or not to buy things that are not aligned with their own personal value set. Um, and that's gaining momentum, um, you know, uh, across the globe. So I think uh, any business, any enterprise has a social responsibility, and I think we are being held accountable to it, not only by our donors but by our consumers and others. So, and the other thing with merch is, you know, you want to, or, or products, you kind of, you know, you want to be cool, and I'm not quite sure how cool we can be. I mean, we're just looking at this product, <laughs> and we're like, oh, hey, that's really cool. Yeah, that might work. And, you know, we're not we're not merchandising people. We're not product people ostensibly. We're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. I think someone might buy that T-shirt. Um, so we're, we're going to start a bit of a test on that. But, again, making sure that all those other things are in place um, and that we're open and honest about our supply chain as well um, and working with partners who enable us to do that. And, um, you know, that's exciting. But to go back to your question, yeah, very much around um, due diligence and having a set of protocols in place that um, – you know, guide who we partner with and who we procure uh, goods from is really fundamental as well. Mm-hmm. Knowing you've been in this organization for about a year, I always figure that it takes at least that to figure out um, figure out the job, at least in my experience. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's in that next year that you really start to make changes. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, what are your, the biggest challenges that you guys are facing right now as an organization? Um, I think really that that technology piece for us is a challenge because we can see the value and benefit of it, Um, you know, getting the right people, the right partners, the right systems. Again, with a group of people who aren't tech people, um, who haven't done marketing automation before 
and who use a CRM simply to, you know, receipt and, and bill people. So I'm, I think the technology piece for, and the fact that it's changing so quickly as well, you no sooner implement a system than the next version 2.0 is out and um, you may or may not have the, you know, the capability or the, the budget to be able to support that. So um, I think technology is a real challenge for not-for-profits because it, it does cost, actually, but having said that, there's a lot of um, lower-cost programs out there and initiatives by some of the big players, which is really helpful. Um, so I suppose that's that's a challenge. And then also, um, you know, people. I mean, I'm absolutely delighted. I've got an, an amazing team. But um, as you want to grow as well, you need to add other skill sets to that. Um, and, you know, people, everybody's sort of talking about this, you know, this talent drain, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing is in not-for-profits, I have found that we've got some amazing people coming to us and literally reaching out from commercial sector and others to say, I'd like to do something that moves more into values alignment with, with their own personal values. So, you know, people that women and men that would like to come and work with you and women um, because it is seen as an organisation that is aligned with your own personal value set, which makes complete sense. I don't think sometimes people coming from the commercial sector into not-for-profits are quite ready for the differences between the two sectors. Um, and so sometimes that can also be fought with um, challenges because you see these amazing candidates, you go, wow, they've got so much to do but and so much ability and so much capability, but also if they've been working in a large FMCG, they've also had really large budgets to do it with. And so, you know, and we all know that, you know, marketing, advertising, all that, all that sort of work, you know, uh, working with donors, it all again, it comes back to that cost um, and that cost ratio. So I think it's really looking for how do we do more with less? And, I mean, that's not peculiar to not-for-profits either, but um, how do we ensure that we're keeping up with the technology and making the right technology decisions because, um, you know, they can be very costly mistakes. Well, those investments are not just yeah. the initial investment but the ongoing maintenance of that. And also the the data that you have in there is both your biggest asset and your biggest risk. Absolutely. So as the cybersecurity things you were talking about earlier, that mm. um, if people are not continuing to invest in these systems because they can't afford to or don't have the right staff trained to do it, it seems to be an ongoing um, risk that's never been mitigated and it gets worse and worse and worse. So um, certainly, certainly I've seen it myself. I'm sure you have in the many organizations you've worked in to try to balance that budget need mm. with the risk of not getting it right or not being able to generate more revenue through knowing more about your data, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, that, and that, you know, the data analytics, um, you know, I've worked, you know, having worked for Telstra, I've seen, you know, data scientists just do amazing things, um, you know, things we could only dream of in the organisation I'm in now, but, you know, they, they are big machines and they are large companies with large budgets um, who are investing in their own technology as they, you know, as they should. Um, but then you come, you know, then I look at where I am now and it's like I, I, I would dream to have, you know, a tenth of that tech budget, even you know, maybe, you know, 0.005% of that tech budget, um, which is probably what we've really got, um, to be able to enable growth. And I think that's the other thing is that tech is an enabler of growth in not-for-profits, but, you know, it's that whole thing about making the right decision and choosing the right products and um, with limited resources. And so... You know, they're big decisions and they can be scary sometimes because a lot of it is you're relying on what you think it will do for you and what it can enable and based on obviously data and vendors telling you what it can do and then you go, hmm, is that really going to deliver me what I want? So I think sometimes the process of discovery and due diligence around technology for me has been probably a journey over the last five or ten years because in each role I've had, it's been a big component about 
you know, underpinning growth. And so you want to make the right decision um, and you don't always do. So you can only do, you know, do the best you can do. But um, it's a fast paced and fascinating space to, to look at. Isn't it interesting that as a professional fundraiser background that you just said that every job in the last 10 years has been heavily technology focused? I, I don't think the external um, audience who are outside of the industry would actually re- understand that the same way. So yeah. it's, um, it's, it's a great insight. Simone, is there anything else you want to share with our audience about lessons learned from your experience that you think might be helpful for other charity executives? Ah, uh, oh. So many I can't even think. Um, I think that the really there's a, a couple of standouts for me, and and I think probably one of them is just really around you know the the resourcing and also looking at. It was really interesting when I was at Telstra. I'd have not for profits come to me because I worked in sustainability for Telstra, and I would have not for profits come to me and say, "Now we'd like to partner with you, and what we'd what we'd really like is you know twenty iPhones for our for our staff." And I'd say, you do realise we don't make iPhones. You know, I know that sounds very condescending, but this notion that because we're a large telco, we would be able to provide, because if we had iPhones, we have to pay Apple for the iPhones, right? So um, so firstly, there's that about, you know, knowing knowing your partner or your prospect before you go and sit down with them. And then people would say, um, well, we're going to give you really good brand exposure, Simone. We're going to put Telstra on our website. I'm like, you do understand that we are the second largest media buyer in the country, right, at the time. Um, so most like most people do kind of know who Telstra is. So that's not really a benefit that's going to jingle anybody's bells within Telstra. I mean, but, you know, so tell me how what you're presenting aligns with our sustainability strategy. So let me walk you through that. And if you can demonstrate how that works, then we can go, okay, that's how I'm going to engage more employees or that's how I'm going to get um, alignment with tech and innovation and, um, you know, products that, that we do sell um, and the fact that, you know, half of Australia at that stage were our customers. So how are we going to engage our customers, okay, by aligning and demonstrating that we're giving back or that there's social good or – so I think sometimes, you know, the lesson – one of the lessons I learned very early on was I remember in UNICEF years ago um, we were talking to Orange Telecom at the time and my colleague from our German office was there and he had this wonderful proposal that he'd worked really, really hard on. And he had it all, and it was all about the digital divide. And this was probably 15, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 15 years ago. And he was talking away. And, and when we first sat down with the people from Orange, they said to us, not interested in the digital divide. And it was just like my colleague didn't even hear that and then launched into an hour's presentation. And I was sitting there almost squirming because I'm thinking, oh, you poor thing, you are hanging yourself out to dry because the only idea you brought is around a digital divide which they've said they're not interested in and you've got nothing else to kind of have a conversation with them about. So I suppose the other thing is it goes to that diversity sort of perspective and and reading your partner and getting to know them. I think sometimes we go in with this is what we'd like from you. But, what you know, it's a reciprocal arrangement. It's like the individual donor. Why do they give money to you and women? Because they think we're playing a role in addressing the barriers for women to be equal. And so if they believe in that, they will invest in that. And so I think sometimes we kind of, um, it's, it's very easy in not-for-profits to get super insulated and super into your own purpose and mission, as you should be. But I think sometimes, you know, we've also got to lift our head up and look around and say, well, what's happening in the world? You know, big data, AI, automation, all these things I don't even know, like NFTs. People are talking to me about NFTs. I'm like, I don't even know what they are, but okay. You know, what's that got to do with the not-for-profit? But, and it's, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. But so I, what I would say is that, 
it's also very easy to get very introverted and, and well, you should just support us because we're a good cause. As I said earlier, there are literally hundreds of thousands of great causes in Australia and more globally. Um, what it is, is it about your mission or your cause that people want to support and give you money? Because it's blind faith a lot of time. It is people handing over their hard-earned dollars to say, I believe in what you're doing and I want to support you financially to do that. I don't think there was a, a greater leap of faith than investing in a not-for-profit when you have nothing to do with it and not sure what the return is but believe in the mission and that they are an organisation that's delivering on their promise to whoever they serve, whether it's people in, you know, whether it's people with disabilities, whether it's, you know, people in uh, developing countries, whether it's, um, you know, people in outback Australia or rural, you know, it's it's, it's really that that notion of that belief system. And, um, and so I think sometimes we get a bit caught up in our own mission and our own importance. And we've really got to spin that around and that again and again and again, keep going, we've got to go back, what does our supporter want? What do they expect of us? And it doesn't mean that the tail wags the dog or that we drive our programs based on what our supporters would like, but it's a relationship. You know, people don't give money to brands, they give money to people and they give money to people and organisations that they think are going to make a difference. So if you can't demonstrate that, then I'd suggest maybe going and working somewhere else because that's what it comes down to. (laughs) Some great advice. I I get asked a lot about corporate partnerships because that's something a lot of organisations that are looking into that right now. Um, And and that I think everything you said right there could probably be pulled out in in a separate topic and just say, hey, if you want to know more, just listen to this bit because I think that was quite quite useful. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm I'm conscious that we're going to be running out of time shortly, but if, if people want to support your cause or know more about such as International Women's Day, um, where should we send them? So unwomen.org.au is our Australia-facing website. It has all of the information on our programs, the work that we do. As you mentioned, International Women's Day, which is the United Nations Day of Observance um, in March. We have our national events on Friday the 3rd of March, so we'd love to people to buy tickets and come along. Um, but also there's things like... Um, you know, we, we sell purple ribbons and that's that's the whole notion of that is not because purple ribbons are glamorous, but because, you know, this whole notion of, you know, demonstrating your commitment to a cause. And so, you know, by me wearing a purple ribbon, it's about showing that I am committed to, to the women's movement and it's a sort of sign of solidarity. So I think there are some really, really good things happening around International Women's Day this year. Um, the theme of it is cracking the code. Um, innovation for a gender equal future. So it does really actually also have a, a large uh, innovation and digital uh, frame of reference to it, which I know is very interesting to a lot of people. And again, because of all the fabulous things that are happening in that space, we're hoping that um, people want to come along and um, and support us. But I think, you know, fundamentally, if you are committed to and believe that women have a value, as I do, and obviously, and sometimes that is either undermined or marginalised, then the greatest way that you can show your support is not necessarily by donating to us. My, my chairman would kill me for saying that, but, um, <laughs> but but I think more broadly, every day it's about how we how we show up, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, recognising that women have value, that women contribute differently, but the contribution they make is different to men. It's not better or worse, but it is a, a contribution that women make to societies. We know Businesses are better when there are more women in in leadership. We know communities are more prosperous, even down to, you know, really rudimentary, um, you know, small communities. We know that women play a vital role. So if nothing else people take away from, you know, the work that UN Women does is, um, you know, the value of women 
you know, we've all got a mother, a sister, a daughter, an auntie, a friend. Um, and for too long, I think women's value has been diminished. And so I'd love to see that change in our lifetime. And we make some gains and then we go backwards and then we make a few more gains and then we go backwards. So it's a bit relenting, but um, I just ask people to, if you're committed to women, organisations like UN Women are great organisations. It's about the empowerment of women, not at the expense of men. We need men alongside us the whole way. Um, it's really important that we recognise the value of women and what they bring to the table every single day, whether it's the kitchen table, the boardroom table. So um, my thing would be, you know, support, respect women uh, because we'll all be a better planet for it. Mm, great final words there, Simone. Uh, thank you for everything you've shared with us today. There's been a, a lot of lessons learned, I think, that other charity executives can really take from this conversation around technology. We've talked about fundraising. We've talked about corporate partnerships. Um, you know, your breadth of experience across so many different organizations has been um, really useful, I'm sure, for many people. And that final word of wisdom, I mean, especially in not-for-profits, there are a lot of women executives, um, far more than men, yeah. in this industry, which is unusual for most industries. But, um, you know, the value of women in general, and I hope to see you at an International Women's Day this, this, this March. And um, thank you for just being on the show. Thanks, Tammy. I hope to see you there too. And uh, any of your listeners, please come along and, or log on to our website, unwomen.org.au, and, um, you know, show your support for women all over the globe. But thanks so much, Tammy, for the opportunity to chat with you today. It's been lovely. And um, I hope it's been useful to someone out there. And um, any questions, I'm happy to, you know, give you more information if you need it. But thanks, Tammy. I really appreciate the opportunity. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT in Plain English segment is, what is AI? AI, or artificial intelligence, refers to the ability of computers or machines to perform tasks that would normally require human intelligence. This can include things like understanding natural language, recognizing images or speech, and making decisions based on data. AI can also be used in a wide range of applications such as self-driving cars, personal assistance, and medical diagnosis systems. In simple terms, it's the ability of machines to think and learn like humans. One of the most talked about AI solutions lately is ChatGPT, developed by OpenAI and was partially funded by companies like Microsoft. Its ability to quickly answer questions like a human is, well, remarkably like a human. In fact, just for fun, the first part of the script was actually written by ChatGPT word for word. While AI tools like ChatGPT could make some tasks easier, it's important to remember that it's still just a program that is answering questions based on the information it's fed. So it may actually provide wrong answers and show prejudice or biases, just like some humans. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on this show. And if you liked what you've heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with a cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you and your teams do every day.